with Michael Easley in contact. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Paul wrote the Roman believer in chapter 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Interesting that we have this ongoing collision between so-called politics and religion. It, it seems to have existed from the founding of our nation in the attempt to separate these concepts. And yet for the life of the Christian, he or she were to live in a context as believers under the word of God, yet under the law of man. I know of no better person to turn to on these issues than Rob Schwartzwalder. He's been a friend for nearly 20 years now. Rob is the senior vice president at the Family Research Council. In 2001, Rob was appointed by President George W. Bush to be a senior speechwriter at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You can find out a lot more about Rob on our website, but to introduce you to him as a a friend, a policy writer, and just a great all-around guy. (laughs) Rob, it is so great to have you on In Context today. Thanks for giving us some time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. How are things in the nation's capital? Well, the culture is collapsing, so Family Research Council's business is very good. There's just always a lot going on, and government is huge. The world affairs that we deal with are highly debated, and so there's always stuff. There's always stuff. Um, you and I have talked as friends over the years about this, and, and I'm, I'm curious how your thinking has changed on, on a number of questions. Number one, um, why do you find such a malaise and indifference uh, among younger uh, believers when it comes to politics, uh, the whole notion of voting in, in, a, in a republic, in a, Democrat, in a democratic process. Why do you think there's uh, such indifference? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons, really three reasons. One of them is that a lot of people who have been involved in politics over the years went in with expectations that were unrealistically high. They thought if we only elect the right people, if we only pass the right legislation, then we can suddenly transform the culture. And their children and grandchildren were to some extent raised in that milieu. Well, here we are 40 years after Roe versus Wade. We've made substantial progress, but abortion, elective abortion, is still the law of the land. I think that there's a certain malaise, a certain apathy among many younger evangelicals because they think we've been in the culture wars for years and we haven't seen the dramatic change that we were promised. A second reason, I think, is has to do much more with the nature of the family. Right now, only 46% of young people reach the age of 17 or 18 in a two-parent home. In the African-American community, it's only 17%. 17% ages? 17 to 18. 17 to 18. And this is subjective. I don't have data to prove this, but my hunch is a lot of younger people who have been raised with nothing but conflict are pretty sick of it. When they emerge into adulthood, Mm -hmm. they don't want to fight anymore. They want to get along. They want to be friends. They're tired of being oppositional and of facing opposition at a very personal level. And that really leads into the third point, which is many of our younger people, evangelical younger people, have been exposed to people in lifestyles and to kinds of and to social things um, that many of us old guys uh, didn't really encounter when we were young. They have good friends who are gays and lesbians. They have um, peers who are cohabiting and having children. Um, They are experiencing 
a different element of social life than their than their parents did. And as a result, it's easier for someone like me to say the only kind of sexually appropriate behavior exists within marriage between one man and one woman. I can say that biblically, I can make a strong theological case, and I should. But if you're a 21-year-old and you come from a broken home and suddenly someone is offering you affection, it's very hard to take a principled stand. doesn't mean you shouldn't. It does mean that you might feel a little bit apathetic about standing as strongly as you should for truth. So those, I think, are some of the things that are preventing younger evangelicals, at least as many of them as uh, there has been in the past, from participating actively in public life. Okay, you raised a host of issues here. Let's try to take them one at a time. First of all, you and I use the term moral relativism a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the sanctity of life is less important than a sustainable environment, than the environment, mm-hmm. than you know, whatever else. Uh, international justice, social justice. Um, how do we begin, without sounding like old guys, to bring that conversation to the table where we can express life conception is not a minor deal. This isn't your father's Oldsmobile. This is the image of God. It's a huge question. And, you know, there's a prominent conference um, every, uh, I think, Christmas where ten to 12,000 young evangelicals come from across the country. I can't recall the name of it offhand, but they deal with issues of human trafficking and poverty. Recently, they were challenged by John Piper, who said, these are issues that socially and culturally have no opposition. Virtually no one supports human slavery. No one supports sex trafficking. No one supports a child being hungry. None of us should, and we should all fight against those things. But Piper made the point, we have to go beyond that and ask ourselves, why we are impas- Why are we impassioned by these issues? when in fact 3,000 unborn children every day are aborted in the United States and we shrug our shoulders. In other words, I think that there's a a human tendency to gravitate toward the things that are non-controversial in terms of their social cachet. Uh, There's no one in his right mind who would say that a girl who was sold into sexual slavery should not be rescued. That's beyond question, beyond dispute. Regrettably, there's a huge debate in our society about the sanctity of unborn life, and many younger evangelicals, because I think they're tired of fighting, they're tired of the opposition. One uh, prominent evangelical writer, Rachel Held Evans, wrote a few months ago, I'm tired of the culture wars. Mm. Um, We can sit back and say, well, you shouldn't be, but she is, and I think her attitude represents that of a lot of younger people. And what we need to do, in my view at least, is come alongside of them in two ways. Number one, as friends, as mentors, uh, people who listen to them, who are in dialogue with them, who ask a lot of questions. In other words, we build relationships. But also, there needs to be theological instruction. And you and I have talked a lot about this over the years. The lack of strong expositional teaching from the Word of God, from our Sunday school classes, from our pulpits, from our conferences, um, a lot of the things that young people have grown up hearing are basically you know, Dr. Phil with a Bible verse thrown in. Mm-hmm. That's not enough. And if you want them to take strong moral stands on issues like abortion or same-sex marriage, we have to provide them with the theological tools, the biblical knowledge necessary to enable them to articulate what it is they believe, why they believe it, and why it's important. Let's take same-sex marriage. When we think of the, the social power behind that phrase, when we think of identity, where uh, one of my uh, four kids coming home from college one semester saying, well, Dad, our, 
we made that way. We're either made gay mm-hmm. or we're not. And that, that is the baseline for education in most, in most schools today. And so uh, my identity is now a sexual orientation, not my identity in Christ or my identity mm-hmm. in some other issue. So the playing field is much flatter today. And if you or I stand up and say God meant for a heterosexual monogamous relationship, we're, we're dismissed. We can say it theologically correct. We can say it ex- expositionally well. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I think that that's a very valid point. The articulation of truth concerning these difficult issues has to be beyond just a propositional statement. I mean, I could sit here and I could say, um, well, Captain, the boat we're in is sinking. And the captain could say, well, as a matter of fact, that's right. Now, shall we go have lunch? I've propositionally made a statement that is accurate. No action has been taken, nor have I explained the significance of it. To a lot of younger people, and you used an excellent analogy. You look at the issue of same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships. They have been told that this is a biogenetic thing, that it's natural, that it's the way a person is, the way he's born. Um, and it seems awfully cruel to come along and say, well, you can't fulfill sexually the desire that you have naturally. We need to take a step back from that and say, why does God only call for monogamous heterosexual relationships within marriage? And frankly, I don't think a lot of us, and I refer to older evangelicals who are in the public sphere, who teach and who preach, a lot of us probably have never really thought about that, mm-hmm. because it's so to us it's so obviously wrong. Instead of going back to maybe what some would call the first principles, is in fact sexual identity immutable? Um, is it something that has anything to do with character? Colin Powell years ago said that race and sexual identity are not analogous because race is a benign and immutable characteristic. It has nothing to do with character, it has, and it cannot be changed, whereas homosexual conduct is an intrinsically moral decision. Anything sexual you know, of, a, of a sexually intimate nature is intrinsically moral. We need to make those kinds of arguments and explain why God's plan is for the good. I, I, the other thing, though, is, and I, I don't think we can say this often enough, when we say no to someone because of a sin that they're engaged in, we are not rejecting that person, even though it might sound that way. The most gracious man who ever lived was our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was crucified. He was a friend of sinners, and they hated him. He said, if they hate me, they will hate you. When we take a stand for the truth, we have to be willing to be misunderstood. We have to be willing to be disliked. And I think for many younger people, for all of us, really, but for many younger people raised in broken homes, in broken cultures, broken schools, that's really hard to do. Mm. Again, let me. so let's go back to a point. Uh, we have to find the right language in the way, and, and even the way you just articulated it, Rob, it's, it's brilliant, but I've got, to, I've got to reduce that down to a lingua franca for a millennial. I wish I had a good, solid answer for that. I can tell you that at the Family Research Council, we've been involved for about three years now in addressing issues of how younger people communicate differently, think differently, value things differently, um, and we're still trying to think that through. I don't think there's any substitute for relationship, and I think you and I could both point to myriad examples in Scripture where older men have come alongside younger men, older women alongside younger women, and mentored them, discipled them. Your great uh, mentor, Howard Hendricks, was one of the fathers, maybe the father, of the modern modern mentoring movement. And there's no substitute for sitting down with some 18-year-old at a coffee shop and saying, so 
you don't believe in Jesus, or if you do, you have a very different view of him than me, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. And just listen and engage him and be prepared to be frustrated maybe for a few hours uh, over an extended period of time because you're thinking all the time, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I want to tell him the truth. What he needs is somebody to affirm that he's important by virtue of listening to him. And I think for many of our younger evangelical people, whether individually or in small groups, we just need to take a step back and say, you know, I could give you the truth serum for the next five hours. I could talk nonstop about what's true, moral, honorable, good, but it's going to bounce off you like a BB unless I hear what you're thinking, why you're rejecting it, how you're integrating it, and so forth. And someone uh, told me, oh, five, six years ago, that this uh, current generation worships dialogue. Mm-hmm. And you you stated it earlier, we were more propositional. If it's true, you learn the true answer, you write it down, you pass the test. And life was built on the uh, presumption that there are truths, there are foundations, that it, it can't be true for Rob and not true for Michael. Mm-hmm. It, it's either true or not. And that doesn't translate across the decade. Uh, absolutely right. In fact, I wrote something a few days ago, and one of the responses I got from a... Um, a respondent on the web was, this is your truth. Mm. And immediately I thought exactly what you just said, Michael. Truth is truth. It's either right or wrong. It's either accurate or not. How can you say, when I make all of these statements that are declarative, propositional, definite, I'm not asking you to agree with them, but you can't just say, well, they're your truth. They're either true or they're not. And yet in the morally relativistic age, the age of postmodernism, the age where Um, If you proclaim something is absolutely right or wrong, you're seen as being harsh or cruel. We have to get past that and go underneath it, and we have to get back to developing the relationships that build trust and that give us a platform whereby we can make those propositional claims that we're used to making. Now, you have recently been involved, uh, you have been involved for many years with the Boy Scouts. Uh, Two of your Mm -hmm. sons uh, have gone through the scouting program, and you took a, a very unpopular position Uh, to speak out against uh, the Boy Scouts' decisions. Bring us up to date, or for those that don't know about that. uh, Sure. A year ago in January, the Boy Scouts issued a tentative policy that they would allow open homosexuals to serve in the Boy Scouts. There would be no change in behavioral requirements in terms of moral conduct, sexual conduct, but if someone professed to be homosexual, he or she then could serve openly as a leader or as a student um, participant, whatever. And that produced a firestorm. And over the next couple of months, they refined that, and they came back with a counterproposal saying, well, what we'll do is we'll allow any boy who wants to affirm that he is gay to remain in the scouts, and as long as he doesn't act out on it. Well, the reason that many of us opposed it was not because we hate homosexuals, not because we fear homosexuals, It's for several reasons. One of them is young boys are very impressionable. And when they're around older boys who model a certain lifestyle, even if they don't actively participate in it, they're going to be swayed by that. As Christians, we believe, have a certain moral code and believe that it's the Bible's moral code. And so we can't just treat human sexuality as though it's the difference between Coke and Pepsi. Um, It's something far more profound than that. Second, I did a review of over 1,900 case file summaries that the Los Angeles Times uh, published. Of 1,932 case files, roughly 1,920 of them, these were files, I'm sorry, I should have backed up. I did a review of 1,932 what the Boy Scouts themselves called 
perversion files that were published by the LA Times. They were case summaries. In reading through these summaries, and these had to do with um, predation within the Boy Scouts over a roughly 20-year period, of the 1,932 incidents cited, roughly 1,915 were homosexual, man on boy or older boy or young, on younger boy. Now, I want to be as clear as I can. Is every homosexual a predator? No. Are most homosexuals horrified by child molestation? Yes. Are the homosexuals as a movement trying to enter the Boy Scouts to recruit or to prey upon boys? No. But individual homosexuals have gravitated to the Boy Scout because, as one author wrote, that's where the boys are. That's a very hard thing to say. It's factually true. Um, I talked to many younger scouts and even older scouts who said, uh, I wouldn't want to be in a tent with a boy who's sexually attracted to me. And on top of all of that, the Boy Scouts historically was founded along Judeo-Christian principles. The, if you look, for example, in Boy's Life magazine, every month there's still a Bible story at the back of Boy's Life. Now they've said, well, we're secular, and we believe, but we believe in God. But you can define God however you want to. They explicitly mm-hmm. say that. And they put up this arbitrary 18-year-old limit saying you can proclaim you're gay or lesbian until you're 18 and remain in the Scouts. The moment you hit 18, you're out. Well, that's arbitrary. It removes them from the protection of the law because already there are are lawsuits planned. Um, The young man, the first openly gay Eagle Scout, uh, a young man here in Maryland actually, uh, says that as soon as he hits 18, he's going to sue the policy. Um, they have no now legal. They now have no legal basis to stand on to prevent open homosexuality in the scouts. If scouting cannot say certain things are right and certain things are wrong, then the scout oath and the scout promise are meaningless because they talk about things like honor, morally straight, um, and all the great virtues that we esteem. You can't have somebody, two boys standing next to each other, and one meaning. Uh, one thing by those affirmations, and someone the other one meaning something fundamentally different. They just become words. Either they have objective, important, valid meanings, or they don't. So a bunch of us got together and uh, went to the National Boy Scouts Convention. Uh, sadly, uh, we our side did not win. Uh, we founded a new group called Trail Life USA, which we now believe has somewhere between 30 and 40,000 boys already involved. And uh, we're very active in Uh, trying to raise up a new generation of young men who uh, are grounded in firm Judeo-Christian principles and around men, their dads, and and other men um, who model biblical morality before them. So it's an exciting new venture, and uh, we believe that the Lord is going to honor that. Rob, you and I both come out of an evangelical church background, generally speaking, evangelical Mm -hmm. fundamental Bible-teaching church. Um, Evangelicalism today is a loaded term. Uh, it's parsed out a lot of ways, and the voting and demographic is much different than it was, mm-hmm. say, two decades ago. Talk to that a little bit. I think that's exactly right. The evangelical community is not a monolith, and that applies not only along racial lines, where many African-American evangelicals tend to vote very differently than white evangelicals, but also Latino evangelicals are a very divided voting block. Both political parties see this and they want to make inroads into populations or sectors that they think they would um, like to accrue for their political support. But it goes beyond politics. You and I have both observed in the last few years a number of prominent evangelical leaders who have been touted with their books and conferences come out. One of them recently denied the existence of hell. 
Um, others have fallen morally. Um, others have said, well, you know, pretty much all issues are created equal, so to speak. And so therefore, um, I'm not going to worry about the slaughter of the unborn. I'm just going to fight global climate change. These are things that have created enormous rifts, not just politically, but sociologically and, more importantly, theologically within the evangelical community. In my view, one of the things that we have to do is come around um, a deep commitment to understanding the essential truths of the Word of God, which is one of the things, Michael, that I was so blessed by when you were my pastor, teaching Sunday after Sunday. We don't need to have five ways to do this and ten ways to do that and all of that. We need to know Christ. And the body of Christ, it seems to me, is fragmented in part because many of us, and sometimes I'm in this category, it's almost as though we think we're doing God a favor by Mm -hmm. following him. Um, And, oh, I've had such a hard life. Oh, this and that. and But I'm still believing. Well, that's great. Keep believing. Keep staying faithful. But remember, you were bought with a price. This isn't about you fundamentally. It's about living for Christ, living for his kingdom, living to advance the gospel. And I think if we got our focus more on him, more on his work, and less on our needs, wants, desires, feelings, I think there would be greater unity in the body of Christ. It's so hard because of this, uh, even the the notion of the millennial phrase, pejoratively, me being the prefix. I think it was it Sapphire who wrote the piece about, you know, uh, sort of a scathing piece about what that all entailed. And yet, um, you and I had our issues with our dads. Mm-hmm. You know, every generation reacts and overreacts typically to their their parents' uh, ideologies, much less Christianity. How do we, uh, all you said is, is beautiful. Take it down a few more notches for me, Rob. How do we, uh, as, as parents, as neighbors, as friends, as church, uh, people that go to church, not even church leaders, but just folks that go to church, how do we embrace a community that is this confused, this divided, and some of these things will never have that, quote, mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian, close quote, community mm-hmm. that we opine for, right? I mean, this is the brave new world, and, and yet Christ teaches us to be in the world, but not of it. I think in terms of evangelism and reaching people and and people in our cul-de-sacs and in our apartment buildings and so forth, when I was first married, I've been married now, like you, over 30 years and been very blessed uh, with a a great uh, life partner, my wife, Valerie. Somebody told me early on in my marriage that the greatest gift I could ever give my wife is my time. That has been invaluable advice for me over the years, and I think it's transferable to the way that we relate to our culture, to our neighbors, to our colleagues at work, uh, just generally across the board. If you want to influence someone's life for Christ, you have to be able to spend some time with them, an extended amount of time over a long period of time. And does that mean you're going to have to say no to certain activities or things that you might really enjoy or find even very profitable? Probably does. It also means, though, that you're going to prioritize certain relationships so that you're winning those people to Christ, uh, if not immediately, then ultimately. But I also think, too, part of what we see among younger evangelicals, and this comes back to something you asked me initially, some of it is simply a feeling of the oats. Um, I've dealt, I deal with 10 to 15 interns uh, every term here at Family Research Council. I talk to them all. We go out for coffee and so forth. And oftentimes, what they're dealing with, particularly at their colleges and universities, is just trying to figure out why they believe what they've been told they should believe. And some of that, you and I went through that, it's perfectly legitimate. They're internalizing their faith, they're making it their own. And I think for some 
crabby old men, and I include myself in this category, <laughs> we need to be patient. And we shouldn't have expectations uh, for younger people that others didn't have for us and that they graciously gave us freedom to work through our own questions and issues. It really comes down to the heart, I think. If a young person's heart uh, for God and for people is where it should be, he will direct their paths. And that's where I think we need to focus a lot more of our attention. Rob Schwartzwalder, the Senior Vice President at Family Research Council. Uh, it's been a privilege to have you on the broadcast, Rob. My, my best to Val, and uh, thanks, my friend. Keep on fighting the good fight. It's a joy, Michael. Thanks for you and for Cindy and for all that you do. Again, thanks for listening to the broadcast. You can find more information at michaelincontext.com. Thanks for joining us. This is Michael Easley in Context.